Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about Adventist mission in the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad to have you with us again on Mission 150 with me, David Trim. And me, Sam Nevis. David, in the last few episodes, we have ventured into the 20th century. Yes. Well into the 1900s. But this episode, we're going back to the 1890s because something remarkable happened um, in 1903, which changed the shape of mission thereafter. That's right. Let's talk about that. Absolutely, Sam. So what we'll be discussing in this episode is how Adventist mission progress stalled in the 1890s and how in 1901 and 1903, the church undertook a dramatic reorganization to fit itself for mission to the world. Okay, so what do you mean by stalled in the 1890s? So in the 1890s, Adventists were already beginning to discover that they had to be culturally sensitive. Originally, the first missionaries go out and they just, we do, we do everything the way it was done in America. If it, works in, if it works in Michigan and California, it's going to work in England and Denmark and Germany, right? Well, they work out, no. That's not necessarily the case. Some of them still have a problem that way, but there are a number of missionaries who are saying, okay, we have to adjust our strategies to reflect the local culture. You don't adjust the message, but you adjust the way that you share the message, that you Mm -hmm. communicate the message, yeah. Um, So by the 1890s, things are looking better for Adventist mission. The church has gone more widely, and we've talked about that in a number of our episodes about how the church, by the 1890s, has gone to South Africa, Southern Africa, has gone to Australia, has gone to Europe, is beginning to go to uh, Latin America and Asia. But in the 1890s, progress began to go more slowly. Um, The pace of expansion slowed down as the century drew to a close. And is is this because we were now understanding how to expand? Is it because our structure, what got us here, was not getting us there? That's, that's one of the chief problems. There, there are a number of reasons, as you might expect, Sam, but one of the key is that the structure that worked for a church that was originally in about eight U.S. states in the Northeast and Midwest is no longer working for a church that has a presence on almost every continent. In so, fact, by the 1890s, it does have a presence on every inhabited continent. So... It's just no longer working. But there are other reasons as well. One is that much, and and this is partly related to the structure issue, one is that much of the work of the denomination was entrusted to many independent associations. There were no departments as we would have them today. In the 1890s, what you had was the International Tract Society, as well as the Sabbath School Society um, and and. Uh, tract society that worked in America. You had the International Tract Society. You had the International Sabbath School Association. You had the American Medical Missionary and Benevolent Association, and you had others. And each of them was a distinct, legally constituted, independent body. They were all their own corporations, basically. Um, There's a degree of overlap in the personnel of each association's offices. There's a, a certain core group of church leaders who tend to hold positions in several things. Um, and in the General Conference. But each of these associations had to have its own separate annual legal meeting. Um, 
and it could steer its own course. So this made co cooperation and collaboration very difficult. There was duplication of effort or there was an assumption this body will, that body will do something so we don't have to do it. So you either get duplication or something just isn't, doesn't even happen at all. Mm -hmm. So that's partly to do with the, the structure and that is just the way things had developed because the church when it first starts uh, has no structure and we resist structure for like 20 years. Right, and we've, we've talked about this. When, and before, the, before the church started, you know, the, the pioneers. Literally for, for, for nearly 20 years they resisted it and at first they say all we need is local conferences. A local state conference as they call them because they're mostly revolved around the US state boundaries. Mm -hmm. This is all we need and then somebody starts to say wait, we've got this literature work. Mm -hmm. So they set up um, a tract society. And then people say, well, no, we need Sabbath school, and no, we have to do medical work. And rather than taking a strategic view, it all just gradually evolves without anyone saying, what's going to be the most strategic way for us to be structured? Because it just, it just, it just happens. And so gradually the church finds itself with all these competing bodies, um, which nobody would have said is, if somebody had said back in 1863, this is the situation we're going to be in in 1893. What's the best way for us to be structured? But that question had never arisen. Um, hmm. We have to say, though, that another problem was the increasingly toxic environment in Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, I think many of our listeners will know that Battle Creek was where the church was founded and was where its headquarters were for almost the first 40 years of its existence. Mm -hmm. So it's the home of the General Conference headquarters since that was founded in 1863. And it's the home of many of our pioneers who stay there forever. Absolutely. It's the and in fact, actually, even though the church headquarters moved to Tacoma Park in Washington, D.C. in 1903, up until the early 1930s, the biggest local church in the world was the Battle Creek Church. So there are many Seventh-day Adventists living in Battle Creek. Right. And many of the church leaders live in Battle Creek. Of course, they travel for their work incessantly, mm -hmm. but, but that's where they call home. That's where they come back to. But Battle Creek was also the home of the church's main publishing house, of its preeminent healthcare institution, Battle Creek Sanitarium, of Battle Creek College, um, and from 1895 of the American Medical Missionary College, and it and the sanitarium were both under the effective control of a titanic figure, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. I see. Now, Kellogg, we can see with the benefit of hindsight, by the mid-1890s, is already on the path that would lead him out of the church in 1907. But nobody saw that at the time. Oh, Ellen White probably did. Uh, and was concerned. Because she has some letters that she wrote to him uh, that are concerning. 100%. And, and she's writing them from the, from the 1890s on, and then they get more and more as the closer he comes to his being disfellowshipped. Um, so she's aware of it, and she's desperate to keep him in the church because he is this extraordinary figure. Not least because she invested in, in his education and, and saw the potential in him and That's invested right. in him. That's right. She had, he wouldn't have become what he became mm -hmm. without Ellen G. White. So she had been a mentor to him originally, but now he's so important um, that he's no longer willing to be mentored. And he increasingly is unwilling to be guided by church leaders. From his point of view, I am the best person 
to guide the church's medical work. And surrounded by incompetence, I'm going to do what I need to do. Yes, and, and, he's looking, and he's looking around and seeing that there is some incompetence and there is some difficulties with the church structure. And he's looking at church leaders and say, these people don't know as well as I know. So the American Medical Missionary College, which is set up to be uh, a, a training place for missionary doctors and nurses, mm -hmm. and indeed does become a training ground for missionary doctors and nurses. Some of the people we've talked about I trained there. Were mm -hmm. trained at the American Medical Missionary College in Battle Creek. That, uh, that's although a, it also had a campus in Chicago. And of course, you have Battle Creek Sanitarium, which is already becoming known outside Adventism that this is the place to go. If you are run down, if you're exhausted, you're overworked, if you're suffering from chronic ill health, go including here. mental which, of course, at the stage isn't very well understood, but you know, nervous, nervous prostration, they would call it. Go to Battle Creek Sanitarium and it will put you back on your feet. And so this, it hasn't yet acquired um, the clientele of presidents and movie stars because there aren't any movie stars yet. Mm -hmm. But even in the 1890s, it's already got a reputation outside Adventism. And furthermore, Kellogg has got a mission in Chicago, which, of course, is just the other side of the lake mm -hmm. from Michigan. Um, it doesn't take that long to get there, especially by train. He has a, an, a city mission in Chicago, the lifeboat mission, which is a huge thing. And it's doing extraordinary things, Sam. It's reaching, it has a prostitutes ministry, as well as missionaries for poor people. It has vegetarian restaurants. It has uh, schools, kindergartens for children, it, a, a foundling, a home for foundling children. Wow. It's, it's doing extraordinary work. But Kellogg, through the lifeboat mission, comes to feel that his ministry is actually among Christians more than Seventh-day Adventists. And if you look at the, 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 the journal that the lifeboat mission produces, which is called the lifeboat, it is pitched to appeal to general Protestants and Christian support. Mm. And so the people who are donating to the lifeboat mission, who are, who are bankrolling it, are not Seventh. Some of them are Seventh Day Adventists, but they're not only Seventh Day Adventists. There's a large number from all kinds of Protestant denominations, and Kellogg starts to see his role as not being an Adventist role, but as being a general Christian role. So instead of of taking the phenomenal results God helps him have yeah. in this mission to position the Adventist Church in the heart of the community and of the Christian work in Chicago, he sees it instead as him growing bigger than the Adventist church. Yes, absolutely. Because he is... And he, he, has, he has a tremendous ego. We have to... I think that's part of the problem. And he has justification for having a tremendous ego. He's done a huge amount. But it, it is partly... He looks around and at his little empire of the sanitarium, the college, and the lifeboat mission, and it's like, is this not great Babylon that I have built? He, he wasn't the last to feel this way, I'm certain, because there are some people in the Adventist church, some church leaders, they are genuinely brilliant. God gave them the yep. five talents. Do you know what I mean? They're not the one talent kind of, they're five talent kind of leader. Mm. And there is always this moment, I believe, where they look around and they are tempted to feel, I'm surrounded by those who don't get it. Yes. And yes. the moment that you say, I, I know something that no one else does, therefore I'm going to push ahead. There is a lack of humility that can only lead to death. 
Lucifer was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really dangerous thing when you're not patient with God to lead His church. Yes, and this this is Kellogg's problem, and Kellogg feels that he's surrounded by lesser talents, and so he. The, the atmosphere in Battle Creek becomes increasingly toxic. And we have Kellogg's letters in which he's writing to this church leader. I know I can trust you. You're the only one who really gets it. Not like uh, that leader over It's there. all over. But then, then he, he writes to the other leader and says the same thing. And says exactly the same thing about the other. So we have his letters in which he's, in which he's being abusive about one church leader to another and then, and, and then the reverse. And so... He is breeding distrust in Battle Creek, which yet, and yet Battle Creek is the center. So that's part of the problem. But perhaps even more, the stalling of Adventist mission expansion was due to the breakdown in that 1863 model of organization. You have to remember in 1863, as we touched on, there were only about Adventists in about eight states. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. Northeast and particularly the Midwest. And how many thousands of people about do About 3,000. 3,000. Now... Mm -hmm. By the end of the century, there were nearly 76,000 Seventh-day Adventists, spread even if thinly on all of the world's inhabited continents. So the structure just wasn't set up to deal with the way the church had become. Yeah. And you have this top-down administration and poor financial management. So Kellogg had some reason for feeling that not everybody was as talented as, as he Well, was. I'm certain they weren't. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not in contention. But, but what you have is church leaders who say, no, we have to centralize everything. There's the danger. And we still face this dilemma today. You have to delegate a certain amount of authority downwards, but you also have to delegate a certain amount of authority upwards. Does the church always get that right? No, it hasn't always got that right. Mm -hmm. But that's the you, you have to you have to trust a certain amount to the church at the local level. But if everything is at the local level, then there's total fragmentation, and we're not moving together. Absolutely. Which which I'm going to pick up on all of these because I think the same themes are happening today when it comes to the digital realm. But mm -hmm. we'll come to that in a moment because so far everything you described is the reality of the world church over the last 20 years and we'll get we'll come to it realm. in the digital because now it's a new mission field yes you know it's yeah. a and we're all trying but it's um it's a mess right um so the problem is church leaders in the 1890s from the best of intentions feel no we have to keep everything centralized in battle creek otherwise there will be fragmentation now ellen white eventually in 1901 says the work has been greatly restricted by the efforts to control it in every line. So Ellen White can see what's happening. And actually, outside North America, mission leaders were frustrated by the fact, this is what one of them writes, all matters outside of the conference must be referred to headquarters. So remember, you've got the conference, which in America was designed to be the state conference. Mm -hmm. And then as they go outside the United States to other parts of the world that don't have states, you, conferences become regions. But at this stage, there is no, there is nothing between the general conference and the conference. So Today, there are no unions, there are no divisions. There are it's no just unions. conference, general conference. It's conference, general conference, and so all matters outside of the conference had to be referred back to headquarters. Now today, Sam, we couldn't run the whole world church from one location, even with instant, in instantaneous no. communication. It just wouldn't be possible. How much less possible was it in the 1890s? Um, in 1885, Ellen White, who was then in Europe 
as part of a two-year period that she spent in the continent. She attended the third meeting of what was called the European Missionary Council, which was intended to improve coordination among the five separate conferences and missions that then existed in Europe. And she actually praised the concept of a missionary council. She said that it was a better alternative than trying to govern everything from what she called distant, centralized authority. She did not like that at all. She did not like that at all. But no action was taken on her insight. No actual authority was given to the European Missionary Council, which therefore could only play an informal role. Meanwhile, as we have discussed in our 21 episodes so far, the church's mission had expanded, which made the situation worse. From Australia, an American missionary and future General Conference president, Arthur Grosvenor Daniels, later recalled that from Australia he said, quote, it often took three or four months before we could get any reply to our questions. They've got a question that arises that's bigger than just one conference. They have to write to Battle Creek. And sometimes it wasn't three or four months. Sometimes he said it took six or nine months to get the matter settled. I can see why. Two months for the letter to arrive, another two, three months to discuss it, craft the response and and send it back. And very often the key people are outside Battle Creek traveling. So it can, yes, by the time you've gone through the whole process, six or nine months have passed, which of course puts a, 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 a break on every kind of progress. Ellen White and her son Willie White were both serving as missionaries in Australia from 1891, and they, like Daniels, felt that a new body was needed to handle what they called South Pacific questions, Australasian questions, um, so that any conference might get a word from a center of authority right there. I'm quoting from them. So we need a center of authority, a, a devolved center of authority, in Australia, so that the conferences and mission fields in the South Pacific and Australasia can get word right away. In 1892, Willie White wrote to the General Conference President Ola Olson from Australia, and he proposed, quote, the organization of some ecclesiastical body to stand midway between state and colonial conferences and the General Conference. Mm -hmm. And in 1894, that actually happened. With Ellen White's blessing, The first Union Conference, as it was called, was founded in the South Pacific, comprising Australia and New Zealand. So the first Union was Australia-New Zealand? Yes, the Australasian Union Conference. I didn't know that. And they elected Willie White as the first president. And so, of course, and they elected Daniels as the first secretary. So it it has its own constituency. Now, in America, they had created what they called districts. Mm. There were six districts which divided up the conferences among them. But the district didn't have its own constituency, and the district superintendent could only advise. Whereas I a, see. Whereas the union conference has the conferences as its constituency, and it is a union of the conferences. Yeah, yeah. So it has its... The, the president and secretary have their own base of authority, mm-hmm. and they can... When they counsel a conference president, the conference president is going to listen. And the conference has, again, delegated some of its authority upward to the union conference. So the district never was in that situation, and that's why it never took off. It never filled the gap. It never filled the gap. But it would be another nine years before the this expands. Another seven years, because seven. They, they, they first expand the union model in 19, at the 1901 GC session, mm. and then there are other reforms in 1903. And actually, the spread of the union conference model was opposed by leaders in Battle Creek, because they said it's taking too much authority away from the center. So they quite like the 
They did. Well, they wanted to protect. They did. It was, it was from the best. It was from the best of motive. Yeah. But they were wrong. <laughs> With hindsight, we can say they were wrong. But we have to also to say it wasn't just about power. It was from the best of motives that otherwise everything might fragment. And as they look around now, it's a big world. And they can remember when it was just a small part of the United States. How do we hold everything together? Yeah. Um, but in July 1898, so four years later, in Europe, the continent's six Adventist conferences and three missions were organized into the European Union Conference. Mm -hmm. So the second, mm -hmm. the, the first union that outside the United States, sir. So mission innovation actually takes place in the mission field, not in the North American homeland. The first it's interesting is the, that it's Australia and Europe. Australia and Europe. Now, Olson, by this time, had been replaced as General Conference President by George A. Owen. That happened in 1897. And actually, Olson was elected the first president of the European Union. So that's a kind of gesture to church solidarity. That here's Olson, a year after he's ceased being General Conference president, is elected president of the European Union. But actually, the reason the European Union was founded was almost certainly because of Ludwig Conradi, who we talked about in an earlier episode, is a young German-American missionary to Germany, but he himself had grown up in Germany before going to the United States as an immigrant, goes back, and he is incredibly mission-minded. And he's aware of what's happened in Australia because it gets discussed at the 1895 and 1897 General Conference sessions. Mm -hmm. And actually, in 1897, the conference, the, the session votes to say the Union Conference model should be adopted more widely. But because Irwin, the General Conference president, is opposed, nothing happens in North America. But Conradi does it in Europe. Got it. Um, but nothing is done to organize unions in the United States or anywhere else in the world. Mm. And yet, the irony, Sam, is that it wasn't only in foreign countries. It was also in the south of the United States that mission was beginning to grind to a halt. Now, today, the Southern Union Conference is the largest union in the United States. Okay. The largest membership and tied. Um, but actually... In the south of the United States, all the way through to the 1910s, the south was a mission field. Mm. The church has barely any presence in the south and, and none in the lower south. Where it has a presence in the south, it's in places like Virginia and Tennessee and Kentucky. Okay. So it doesn't go as far as Georgia and Florida and... Or Alabama or Mississippi. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. That happens in the 1890s with Ellen White's second son. So we talked about her older son, Willie White. Edson? Edson White, mm. exactly. Edson White leaves the church for a time. He goes on his own journey, but he comes back and he feels compelled to go as a missionary to the south. Isn't that the boat? That... He famously, yes, he creates a, a paddle steamer, mm. um, which the Morning Star, uh -huh. which he uses to go up and down the Mississippi and its tributaries. Now, one reason for doing that, Sam, is partly because it meant he couldn't be lynched easily. Because was he, was he, he was in danger of by doing mission in the South to blacks. That's what he did. He didn't uh, just want to reach whites. He wanted to reach the poor blacks who were, were not long removed. They'd only been emancipated 30 years before. So he was teaching them and healing them. He was and teaching them and them. healing them, absolutely. And whites hated this. They especially hated teaching blacks because that empowered them. That meant they could read and they could count and they could query the contracts that the whites were beginning to force on them that 
almost okay. returned them to the status of slave labor. They were sharecroppers. So, so before being lynched, he would just move the boat. He would move the boat. So as it were, you know, if he was if he was in one city or town for a long period of time, he would be time. He would become a target. With the steamer, he can move up and down, and they're never quite sure where he's going to be. <laughs> And so he's, he's very creative, very creative, but also very successful. Mm. But in the South as well, mission was beginning to grind to a halt rather than, um, than continue to expand. And mission was being impeded rather than impelled by the administrative, st administrative structures that had been intended for a denomination that was much smaller in terms of membership, much smaller in terms of, of geography, and much smaller in terms of number of administrative entities. So was it the, the lack of communication, or what was it that, how could the General Conference stop and impede the growth there? Because again, everything has to be referred back to Battle Creek. Oh, every problem has to be solved. Every there. problem has to be solved. That's a recipe for disaster. And uh, Absolutely. <laughs> and so every con if you, you have two conferences which are maybe close together mm -hmm. and have share a common border and maybe even share a city mm -hmm. um, like St. Louis, for example, or Kansas City, which span state borders, but conferences tend to be, tend to be state conferences. Mm -hmm. But the two conferences can't get, get together and reach their own conclusions. It has to be referred back to Battle Creek. Wow. And Battle Creek, the leaders are conservative. Which is good, and church leaders are still small c conservative today because we don't want to do anything that will make a mess of the church's sure. work. And so it's, it's probably a fair criticism that church leaders aren't always as bold as they might be. But as we've already seen, Sam, in this podcast, and as we will see in future episodes, at times church leaders are very bold indeed. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, at times it's probably a fair criticism that church leaders aren't as bold as they might be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the case... In, very risk-averse. Very risk-averse. Risk yeah, That's another way to put you're it. You're trying to do the right thing. You don't want to make a, You don't want to mess things up because this is God's work. Yeah. So you advance slowly and cautiously. And Edson White actually writes to his mother, still in Australia, to express his frustration with how the Southern work was developing. And he was particularly irate that leaders in Battles Creek, lacking the insight of leaders on the ground, and perhaps lacking their passion as well, because mm. Edson White's very passionate about sure. this, obviously, because he's risking his life. Yes. So here are leaders in Battle Creek who lack the insight and perhaps the passion of leaders who are on the spot in the South, nevertheless refuse to delegate authority to them. This is what Edson White writes to his mother. He writes in very graphic terms, in this part of the field where I am working, the principle seems to be where there is a head, hit it. What he means is, where somebody sticks his head up above the ground and says, wait, can't we do something? Wrong? Just, no, slap you back down. Australians have another expression for this, the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. Whenever a poppy grows, you that cut it off. Like, and so he's uh, saying the problem is in the church leaders, if somebody pops their head up and has a good idea, no, you smack them back down. And then he says this, if the general conference is so balled up that they cannot or will not do anything for this field, then why not stand aside and let those who will help do something? Oh, he's irate, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And But just imagine, if this is the experience of the prophet's son in the same country as the church headquarters, right. what is it like if you're a leader in southern Africa? Maybe it's easier, David, because <laughs> 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 they're so far, most decisions are not even sent.
No, but but, but, they're but trying, they do send it. Yeah, they're they want to be faithful. They want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. And so you've got leaders in, in Southern Africa as well as Australia um, saying, wait, again, no, we've, we had a South Africa conference. Now we've got mission fields in the north in Rhodesia, which we've done programs about already. Yes, yes. Um, the natural thing is for there to be a, a headquarters in South Africa that can deal with the problems of course, the whole of the territory, but no, we've got to refer it all back. So 1901 comes at some point, 19... but before then... <laughs> Adventist, leader, Adventist administration has become sclerotic. There's been a hardening of the arteries. Um, and that's partly just a matter of sheer size. Today, the church's largest of its 13 divisions is the Inter-American Division, which has 25 unions in a relatively limited area. Hmm. In an, era, in, in an era before instant communication or jet travel, the Adventist World Headquarters in Battle Creek in 1893 was trying to administer 45 subordinate bodies. Impossible. Dispersed globally, and by 1899, it was 87 conferences and missions wow. on every inhabited continent. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's yeah. never going to happen. It's either the mission or their structure. Exactly. It cannot be both. Sam, you put your finger on it exactly. That's the choice that faces them. And providentially, perhaps, Ellen and Willie White come back from Australia at the start of 1901. They've, they've come home for good, but it's also in time for the 1901 General Conference session. And that's how they see it. Mm. Um, the choice is either the church's structure or the church's mission. And you know what Ellen White is going to say in response to that question. Yes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we the, mission, the mission is more important than your structure. The mission is more important than your ego. The mission is more important than anything that could hinder it. Yes. That's the... 1901 and 1903, we'll have to leave to our next podcast. But what I'll also say is the other problem that they had, and, and one of the issues that had to be resolved in the early 1900s, was mission finances. Um, in 1897, the executive committee actually voted a resolution that referred to the large indebtedness that is resting on so many of our institutions. And it then acknowledged the reality for foreign missions. We are in such dire distress for means to carry on the missionary enterprises already in operation. So we don't have the finances. In 1899, at that year's general conference session, William Prescott, who had been superintendent of the British mission, complained, quote, funds designated for specific mission fields had been mismanaged and often not been sent to the intended fields. Hmm. And at the same session, the president of the Foreign Mission Board reported that during the last two years, we have opened up no new work in any part of the world. It has been an impossibility. And yet, actually, the Foreign Mission Board was part of this problem, Sam. It had been founded in 1889, intended to open up the work in new mission fields. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, because now they, have a, now they do have a model. It wasn't one that they created purposefully, but they have the model of lots of these independent associations. So the Foreign Mission Board was actually constituted as a separate legal co corporation. It's separate to the General Conference. And how does the funding work? Do they need to keep bagging, or is it appropriations? Or it's it's supposed to be appropriations from the General Conference, but they're also it's it's a very it's, but it's separate. It's very murky, in fact, because we don't have good records for that period, and it seems that actually from some parts of the world, offerings go directly to the Foreign Mission Board. But so now you've got, for example, in the late 1890s, the Church wants to open up a mission field in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the Middle East was, the res- was partly the responsibility of the church in Europe. So you have the new European Union conference, but you also have the foreign mission board, and they're competing with each other to, what do we do? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and meanwhile, you've got the foreign mission board, which sees itself as actually being in rivalry to the general conference, partly because the general conference isn't very good at doing things. So now you've got the foreign mission board setting up as almost another operator. Competing with both, the, both church structures, the general conference and the local fields. Yes, yes. And so um, this is what Ellen White writes in 1896. The whole body is sick because of mismanagement and miscalculation. Ouch. Yes. The people, this she continues, the people to whom God has entrusted eternal is interests, the depositories of truth pregnant with eternal results, the keepers of light that is to illuminate the whole world, have lost their bearings. Of those in Battle Creek, the men and women that God has appointed to do the most solemn work ever given to mortals in partnership with Jesus Christ and his great firm? That's the question. Of the people in Battle Creek, in partnership with Jesus Christ. It mustn't have been easy to be a president or an administrator when Ellen White was alive. This is one reason they were glad she went to Australia. <laughs> it's, it's, bad enough reading, oh, man. it's bad enough reading the testimonies she sends, which they do, and they chase, and you can read the minutes of a general conference session, and they read it as like, there's, everybody read, they read the testimony and everybody breaks for prayer because it's so chastening. But it's easier to do it when she's on the other side of the Pacific Ocean yeah. Than to do it locally. And then she continues, are those whom Christ has bidden to communicate the light from the burning lamps to others that the regions of darkness may have opportunity to hear the, sa- the saving message doing their duty? So Ellen White is very clear by the late 1890s, things have to change. But perhaps partly because she is in Australia, in 1897 and again in 1899, we know that people at the time write and say, yes, we're going to have a general conference session, we're going to reform things. Mm-hmm. So there is a, the spirit of that. Yes, but nothing happens, nothing happens. And meanwhile, you have a general conference executive committee that is about 10 members, some of whom are always traveling. So you're talking about the church being run by about half a dozen people at any one time. Wow. And Ellen, this is why Ellen White talks about kingly power. There are those who, who say, well, that, that testimony is always relevant to the general conference. And of course, we are sensitive to that. But the truth is, it's, what she's writing about when she writes that is a totally different situation to today where you have an executive committee of more than 300 with representatives from every part of the world. And even before it gets to the executive committee, any proposal goes through multiple committees. Well, and because now you have the union, yeah. you have 135-odd union conferences around the world which provide that extra level between the general conference and the conference, mm-hmm. and you have the divisions, 13 of them. Uh, plus three unions that are attached directly to the general conference. So you've basically got 16 world regions that can take care of certain things. Um, So it's no longer the general conference trying to micromanage everything because the general conference has devolved some authority downwards, even as some other authority is still delegated upwards. Things that are of wider concern to everyone get decided by the executive committee or the general conference session. And that worked really well, David, for about a hundred years. And now you're going to talk about but, the digital world. But then <laughs> came the internet. And the internet came to mess up our, our neat little system. Because what we have, our system is predicated on geography. Yes. And within, yes, the, ge- within the geographical boundaries that we have set, uh, we worked really well. 
we know when one boundary ends and when one continues. So for the entirety of the 20th century, if we wanted to communicate, we would create whatever it is that we are communicating, and the divisions would choose whether to translate it or not. Yes. And then they would pass it on to the unions, and everything was geographically bound. A magazine is either distributed in this territory or it isn't. A radio station goes until here and it does not cross. Uh, even television goes, right. you know. It has a limited, limited broadcast. Yes, right. that's right. And it is expensive. So you need to be very intentional if you want to broadcast to a particular region. But then comes the internet. And now everything is read and published by everyone. And it has taken us about 20 years, this is where we are now, to realize the size of our problem. Yeah. So we and I, have, I have been on committees where we've talked about who's going to be responsible for translating these, these things on the internet. And it's like, well, divisions are responsible for translating, but this doesn't work for something when you have a, a global yeah. platform. But then which division? So, you know, exactly, which division is French, going to translate? French is spoken by seven divisions, and the same material is accessed in all of them. English is, you know, is spoken by many divisions, and Portuguese and Spanish, those are the main languages, but also others. So... In Portuguese the, is spoken in three, maybe four divisions. Uh, five. Five or six. You have South America. Inter-European. Inter-European. Southern Africa, Indian Ocean. And ECD and Macau also on the other end. So you've yeah, got... Yeah, that's true. You've got Macau. Yeah. You've got uh, Saint Tome and Principe. Yes, that's right. So you've got uh, all three African Big divisions, in fact. So it's, it's five, six divisions. And is it... Okay, but one of our divisions translates and does does it well. Let's say the South American division in Portuguese, now that you mentioned it. Is it appropriate for people who live in, in Angola to rely on the South American division to have access mm -hmm. to content and, 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 and not just news content, but also evangelistic content? So now we have a real problem a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, Novo Tempo, our media center in South America, had 1,358 names of people that decided for baptism in Mozambique that speaks Portuguese, <laughs> and nobody knew exactly where, how to follow up and how right. to do this properly. Right, So because it's on another continent. Everything that you mentioned there is happening today. We have total fragmentation and total duplication. Hope Channel is doing the same thing as AWR is doing globally, same thing as communication is doing globally. And today, family ministries, take family ministries, for example, they're expected to have the best social media channels that represent Adventism to the world in each of those languages. We don't have the funds to pull that off for all of our ministries and all of our church. We launched the World Church channels in languages that are spoken by more than one division. This is YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and X, or was Twitter what now? Was Twitter. What was Twitter? The bird has been killed. So uh, in four languages, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English. And we need more than 50 people, uh, possibly about 80 people, to create that content and run those. Because it's not just publishing. You need to have a relationship with people. Yeah. So yeah. the digital world is, is another universe. It's like another planet that we need to reach. And it does not operate in the same way that we have this planet, our physical planet operating. Not only that, they need to, to, to come together. How do they come together? How do we end duplication? How do we, um, without centralization, right? It's not appropriate for us to have 6,000 people working centrally doing the work of all the world. No, 
pastoral care, for instance, that yeah. people are looking for online, that's a local conference that needs to hire people to offer online pastoral care. But our seminaries aren't even teaching it yet. Mm. So we have a, a, we are living in pioneering times. I am convinced of this. The third industrial revolution is it's right here. Yeah. So it is, it is both devastating to see the parallels, and we don't have the time, but every single point that you mentioned, I could give you examples in the world church of how we are with the same fragmentation, the same duplication, duplication the same neurotic spirit. We don't know exactly what to do. We don't have the budget. People are complaining, right? People are complaining from different mission points. Like we have the opportunity to reach people through the digital means. But, you know, thankfully, I don't believe we have the same um, fear aversion mm. that we did. And my experience in the general conference is that people are very willing to try different things and see what we can do to bring us together. And I, I hope in the next few years, we'll experience not a restructuring that stops what we're doing so far, but an adaptation of our structure that will allow us to be efficient and effective in this new digital world. So who are the new missionaries and how will they be sent? And how, how, how does this work uh, entirely? I don't know, but that, those are the questions that I am very keen on figuring out over the next few years, because if we're gonna finish this mission that God has given us, it will require a digital strategy, which I hope will, be, will emerge in the next few years. Oh. So history, as so often, has lessons for today. It's not just interesting or chastening or, in, uh, or uh, inspiring. It's also illuminating for us. I can't wait to hear what happened in 1901 exactly and what happens in 1903. But until we get there... Yeah, come back and join us next time. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today where you could go and be involved in mission, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.